have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, whether you brought, you brought a physical copy with you or you got one on your phone, find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, or, yeah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in the second week of looking at Paul's letters to the church there in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verse 1 to 16 together. First Thessalonians chapter 2. The word of God says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like nursing, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, but we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them. At last, this is the word of God. One of the best pieces of advice that I've ever received is that you can't believe everything you see or hear. Especially in the days of the internet, especially in the days of the internet, you can't believe everything you see on social media or in a Google search result history. In fact, I think this quote, commonly attributed to Abraham Lincoln, gets at the point. Some people, some people are with me, some people aren't. That's okay. That's all right. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Obviously, Abe Lincoln wasn't around for the internet. Even those younger folks, he wasn't even around in the days of dial-up. That was, 
That Abe Lincoln was around long before that, right? So the point of the meme here is to make is to show us that you can put up a photo of somebody with a quote next to it, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's all legit, right? That doesn't mean that that quote came from that source. We can't believe everything we see and hear. And that's actually part of what Paul's point here in chapter 2 is. As he gets into the heart of the letter, he was responding to mistruths and rumors that were spreading around the church in Thessalonica. There were all kinds of things because Paul had come to them, preached to them, and left suddenly. Some had said that Paul didn't care about them or that Paul was only in it for what he got out of it from them or that Paul's motives were not to be trusted. This goes to show us, one, that people have always been quick to draw conclusions, right? But it also shows us Paul's heart as he responds to these concerns. He begins by looking back at his initial encounter with them. He goes back to the beginning, and he wants to show them this main idea of what genuine ministry looks like. Paul provides for us a picture of what true, authentic, real ministry and witness looks like. And he hopes that by being reminded of this, these people will see through the rumors that are around them to see Paul's love for them. How could the Thessalonians know that Paul was legit? Because his ministry had all the marks of a genuine ministry. And Paul tells us first, that genuine ministry is founded on conviction. That genuine ministry is founded on conviction. Paul begins by pointing toward his boldness, his conviction to stand in the face of suffering. Look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul begins by addressing what many in the Thessalonican church were so concerned about. Was Paul's coming and his ministry to them in vain? Was it empty and a waste of time? Was all of this suffering they were going through for nothing? And Paul's answer is, Well, of course not. My coming to you was not in vain. And he calls them back to the church's founding. You can read more about this in in Acts chapter 17, which we looked at last week. But before ever coming to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 16, Paul suffered all kinds of things in the city of Philippi. Again, you can read this when you get home later. But one of the things he encountered in Philippi was this demon-oppressed girl who would follow them around and was trying to draw all this attention to them. And let me tell you, for me, if I began to encounter the girl from the ring, I would have been out of there, right? But he has this demon-oppressed girl following him everywhere he's going. Yet Paul persisted. Then, to add on to the bad day, he was beaten by rods, and thrown in jail for public disturbance. And there in the jail, Paul and his buddies end up getting freed with an earthquake, and you see the, con- the sort of famous conversion of the Philippian jailer. And even after that, even after that bad day, right, he goes to Thessalonica to preach the gospel and has more conflicts. Remember, Paul's preaching in Thessalonica caused a mob, and he was only there for a couple days. Imagine that. 
You go to a place, and there's conflict with this, this girl with this demon. You get beaten by police. Then you get jailed. You then end up getting miraculously set free to go to the next city, where then you encounter a mob. <laughs> Many of us would be tempted to throw in the towel, but Paul continued to preach the gospel. And Paul's whole point here is he says, hey, you can know that I am genuine by looking at my suffering. Because people will not suffer like this for a lie or for something they're not genuine about. People will put up with some inconvenience, but throw in a few demons and some jail time, and people begin to wonder if it's really worth it, right? And so this was suffering Paul went through, but Paul and and the Thessalonians continued to suffer. This wasn't just a one-time, intense, bad week for him. This was Paul's life, on and on and on and on. He actually echoes this reality at the end of the passage in verse 14. Look what he said there. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Here's the main point, verse 14. He says, you were suffering the same things from the people around you as Paul and Jesus and the prophets did from those around them. He says, we suffered We were drove out. We were opposed. They murdered Jesus and the prophets, and now they were going to persecute the church. Because genuine ministry is costly and requires deep conviction that the message of the gospel is true. See, in Paul's day, there were many spiritual gurus who traveled around in those days, would would really get a following in a city, They would get their personal gain, and they would get the heck out of town. And Paul says, I'm not like one of those. I didn't leave town out of a desire for comfort or to skip town with what I really wanted. No, I sent out for my safety and to make sure the gospel was preached all over the region. Paul's ministry was genuine. He was a man of conviction. He he was willing to suffer for what he believed. Second, Genuine ministry is marked by character, marked by character. Paul continues by highlighting how he ministered among them. And look what he says in verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Look at this. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Notice, Paul points toward his character. And notice the emphasis he puts on his words. Because he truly believed What Jesus said, that if you want to know if somebody's ministry is genuine, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know the truth of what they think, what they believe? Look at what they say, because again, the mouth reflects 
the heart. First, he says that his appeal did not come from error. He wasn't lying or being dishonest. And let me say, in this context, dishonesty wasn't what wasn't necessarily some sort of big indiscretion or, or, or outright theft by Paul, but dishonesty in ministry can look like trying to soften or backpedal or even deny what the Word of God clearly says in order to gain approval or followers. But Paul didn't come to them so that he would be liked by them. He also says that his ministry didn't spring from impurity, the emphasis here is, is on sexual purity in the context. And he says, hey, I didn't use anyone for my own personal pleasure, but rather I sought to please God. He says he never came with flattery, using empty words to manipulate people. And let me say this, this is a real struggle for anyone who works with other people. You know this, the, the, the struggle to say what you know they want to hear in order to win people's approval and trust or, or win their favor. You only have to watch the news to see what a push this is for folks that often are working with lots and lots and lots of people, right? In fact, the temptation for, for many of us is often to use people as a means to an end rather than seeing that the good of these people was the end. And he says that he never came with the pretext of greed. In fact, he says in his second letter that he never took money from any of them. Look at this, 2 Thessalonians, so his second letter, chapter 3, verse 8. Look what he says. He said, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And he speaks the same way, actually, in verse 11 of this, in verse, uh, around verse 9 of this passage, talking about working day and night for these people. He adds that as an apostle, certainly he had some right for their support among them, but he says, I'm not seeking that. I'm not even seeking glory and honor. Rather, he wanted the glory to go to Jesus. Paul says, in other words, if I was out for myself, I'm very bad at it. He says, if I were all in this for my own selfish gain, I really need to, to, to do better at this whole selfish gain thing because I got nothing from you. I didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. I told them the truth. He didn't even try to achieve his own purposes because for Paul and for any genuine ministry, it wasn't about him. Paul truly lived out the saying of Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says genuine ministry is founded on conviction, marked with character, and third, it is done with care. Done with care. Look at verse 7. He says this, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom 
and glory. Verse 8 there is so central. He says that him and his ministry companions were affectionately desirous for them. And that these people had become dear to them. And he uses the language of, of both a mother, gentle with her newborn baby, and of a father, stern and ready with loving exhortation. Paul often used this familial language to speak about the church, right? We're often used to referring to one another as brother or sister, so-and-so. But do we ever think of other believers, particularly those that might be more mature than us, as spiritual parents to us? Let me say this. There are a number of people in this church that are spiritual mothers and fathers to many, And there are also many here that have the ability to be so, but choose not to be. To nurture other believers in their growth. Some of us are consciously doing that. Some are unconsciously doing it. Some of us could be, but refuse to do so. And he's inviting us to step in to finding people who can mentor us, grow us so that we can then mentor and grow others. And he says the primary way this sort of spiritual parenthood manifests itself is in how we live as godly, consistent lives of faith. Not perfect, but faithful and consistent. Look at verse 10 and 12. Look at the emphasis he puts here. He says, first verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you Believers, And then verse 12, he says, We exhort each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Consider this, he says, One of the most loving and caring things we can do is to keep an eye on how we live together. To be concerned about how we are living together. Not in a busybody sort of way. Paul opposes that clearly in other passages, but rather the way a family is meant to share concerns and burdens for others. He says we're meant to share concerns and burdens of others. See, many of us sadly haven't, haven't seen, we, we have family that we see once a year rather than seeing them regularly and having life with them and allowing them to lovingly speak into our life. But what Paul invites us to is not to, to gather with the family of God, you know, when, whenever we're having the right kind of food or whenever the right kind of person invites, but to come. And he says, not simply to share the gospel, yes, to do that, but to share our very lives as well. To do far more than simply fill a seat every once in a while. This is what church is meant to be about. Not about simply believing our faith together, though that is important but living our faith together. And this is Paul's concern for them, and he displays it with a sort of parental care for them. He says, hey, as somebody who's a mature spiritual father, here's what you need to do. Be careful how you walk, and be careful to walk with other people in the right direction. And he says, forth and finally, that genuine ministry seeks genuine conversion seeks genuine conversion. Look at verse 13 here. This is probably my favorite verse in this passage. Look at this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, 
but as it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is key. What was Paul's goal? What was his aim? What did he want to see among them? He wanted them to receive the Word of God as it was. He didn't want them to necessarily walk away thinking about the messenger, but about the message, about what they brought to them. He wanted to see genuine conversion in them, that their message was not of human origin, but of divine authorship. Think about in verse 6, he calls himself an apostle or a messenger of Christ. Not of himself, not of his own cause, but of Jesus. In verse 2 and verse 8, he says that, that his message was the gospel of God, not of his own private opinion. In verse 4, he says that he's been entrusted by God with the gospel and that God has tested his heart and found it true. Verse 5, he says that God is his witness. He sees their work and approves of it. In fact, Paul's whole point is to say that Thessalonians, you are the primary evidence that the ministry is genuine because you accepted the word of God as it was and it's at work in you. He said, if you want to see that genuine ministry is at work, he says, Thessalonians, go look in the mirror. Look what God has done in your life. They had converted, been transformed. Here's the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 from last week. Look at this. That they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what could be described of them. Genuine conversion, a turning, a transformation away. Paul sought their genuine conversion. And there's much here to say by way of application, but I want us, before we get to that, to just consider together that the Apostle Paul knew what it was to have incredible life-changing transformation in his life. Think about it. Paul ends up writing the majority of the New Testament, and we read about his testimony in the book of Acts. You can look it up later, chapter 8 and 9. And he went from a persecutor to an apostle after a life-changing encounter with Jesus on a road to Damascus. Paul had experienced an incredible conversion. And to those of you who might maybe be skeptical about Christianity or its truth claims, the Apostle Paul is a challenge to many of us. Because today, it's rare to see people switch their opinions on anything. Think about the amount of people we see that will even switch political views or, or social or moral shifts. And yet, what happened in the Apostle Paul was far greater than going from politically liberal to politically conservative. What could change a man who was once one of the Jews who was persecuting the, Thessalon the Thessalonians, even to the death of one man named Stephen, to now become a man who had such a genuine ministry among them, he was ready to give their lives for them. I'd ask you to consider in a day where authenticity is very much valued but rarely found, that the Apostle Paul is a challenge to your skepticism. What makes a man so sold out to something that he was so against not long before? I mean, many of us today aren't even willing to commit to a shampoo much less commit ourselves to a cause 
and a people like this. Could it have been a supernatural encounter with the living God? Some might say, well, there's other factors, sociological, political, psychological. I'm like, okay, what's going to take more faith to believe? (laughs) That Paul just had some mental break or that what happened to him was truly supernatural? Let me say, both of those commitments are ultimately faith commitments because Paul isn't here in the flesh to talk to any of us about what happened to him. But the question we need to ask is what is more easier, more satisfying to believe that, that there were other sociological factors strong enough to change this man from the inside out? Or that the Savior he tried to destroy is actually alive today and transforming people through life-altering encounters with his word. And he can actually do that for you today if he's never done that through simply calling on him through calling upon Jesus to encounter you like he did Paul, and he will meet you right where you are. But there's much more applications here, particularly as I think about myself as a a minister of the gospel, as a pastor. This is a convicting passage for any leader in the church because it reminds us first of the power of the word of God. What could, what could this sort of work among the Thessalonians? What, what did this was a straightforward, clear, Bible-saturated message. He didn't come to primarily tell funny stories or to stir people up in political outrage. No, he came with the Word of God for the people of God. This is why one of the things we do here is verse-by-verse verse teaching through the Bible to make sure the Bible gets the priority, not what might uh, be, be what would tickle people's ears or, or get them the most excited or what might be the, what's hip and happening in the world at that time. What about us? Do we give lip service to the power of the Word or do we truly believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for any and all who will believe? Second, It calls me to examine my heart and examine my love. Do we see one another as family to be loved? The second that we become about anything other than the good of people, then we've missed the boat. And the prayer should be, Oh Lord, give us the love of a mother to nurse others with gentleness. Give us the love of a father to speak with seriousness filled with love for the people of God. And I think that's something for us to pray together for one another. And finally, this text reminds us, I think, something I said several weeks ago, that elders or leaders in the church need to have thick skin but tender hearts. I shouldn't be surprised at opposition, and I need to be ready to expect it. And hear me, so should you. Because genuine ministry isn't just for pastors and leaders you might see up here, but rather it's for all of us. We all need to live with genuine conviction, a boldness to preach even when it's hard, with a genuine character, not to deceive or manipulate, but to share the gospel and our lives as well, with a genuine love for those whom we serve and minister, and with an aim at genuine conversion, that they may walk away not going, man, that, that guy was so funny or so smart or he's just so eloquent. But no, going, I have encountered the word of God today. 
And we should expect opposition. Why should we expect it? Because Paul did? Yes. Because the prophets did? Yes. But ultimately, because Jesus did. Friends, so many people go, man, if we were just more like Jesus, the world would like us. And I'm like, well, you've never read the book. I'm sorry. <laughs> because Jesus was, the, was more like Jesus than any of us. <laughs> And they killed him, right? And in fact, whether it's hard, it's, sometimes it can be hard to wrap ourselves around this, but the suffering of Jesus was actually part of the plan and purpose of God. So many of us struggle with, how could God ever have a purpose in my suffering or in my struggle? And then I, I think to myself, and I try to encourage folks to go, look at the cross, Look at the suffering and the opposition and the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Peter said as he stood up on the day of Pentecost and he proclaimed this message. Here's what he said, Acts 2, 22. Look at this. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here it is. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look what Peter says here. He says, the crucifixion of Jesus, according to the plan of God, even as Peter was holding those there responsible for what happened. Peter didn't have a problem with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He said both and. They were responsible. It was God's plan, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But he also reminds us that though Jesus died, he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, that he didn't stay dead. Though it was the plan for him to die, notice who it was that raised him up. That it was God who raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Though he suffered, he stands to live eternal. And through his death and resurrection, he stands alive in heaven today, ready to, to receive us. Any and all who come to him by faith or who come to him today in renewed repentance, he stands ready to receive because he died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification in order to set us right with God. And if God could use the greatest act of lawlessness to rescue lawless people, certainly God can use your suffering. Certainly God can use your labor and toil. Certainly God can use even the most darkest trauma of your life for his gr glory by his grace that others might come to experience eternal life in Jesus. See, that was Paul's motive. Despite the rumors that might have been out, despite what the tabloids of the day might have been saying, Paul was a genuine minister with a ministry driven by conviction, character, and care with an aim toward their conversion, their transformation. And may we follow in his footsteps and give ourselves to the work of sharing the gospel, yes, but of sharing our own lives as well.
Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, the, we think about the incredible work that you did among not only the Apostle Paul, but there in the Thessalonians and there among people in this room, Lord, to cause transformation, to cause conversion, to take us from worship of idols to worship of the true and living God, to take us from persecutors to apostles. And that same grace is available today for anyone looking to, to turn their life around. To any who by grace through faith have been convicted of their sins today and are ready to say that what I've heard today isn't the word of man, but the word of God. That you would humble our hearts and break our hearts to see that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone within the sound of my voice today, that you would do the work of grace to draw them to yourself. Lord, I also pray for those of us that know you. The Lord, we wouldn't simply be about sort of surface level relationships or simply showing up to somehow check a, check a card in our mind, but to give ourselves with conviction and character and care towards seeing the transformation of others through sharing not only the gospel, but our very lives as well. Be honored in our worship and send us out of here empowered by grace to do your work in the world. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The way, the truth, the true. 
quick words before we dismiss together. First, thank you for your giving. Some of you came in and the baskets weren't at the doors. There are now baskets at the doors. And as always, online giving is available through the week. That's one of my favorite uh, options to do. And uh, just remind you that that's there on our website. And there's a text number as well. Also, if you're new with us, visiting with us, or you're back post-COVID, Uh, One, welcome. We're glad you're here and we'd love to connect with you. We have a little welcome desk right outside here, right by the nursery with a little Get Connected card. If you'll fill that out at the desk, leave it with us. We have a little gift for you. We'd also know if you want to know more about our church, prayer needs, uh, need to talk, whatever it is, you can fill that out. You can also fill that out online and we'd love uh, to just know that you visited with us and get your thoughts and uh, connect with you uh, in the future. So. We close now with a benediction, a blessing from God's word here from the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen.